Hello and welcome to UX Consulting Academy. My name is JJ. This is UX Consulting Podcast, episode three with Peter Merholz. Peter, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Amazing. I'm really glad to have you here. This is really cool to have this conversation. I wanted to uh, talk to you for a while now, actually. I read your book, the, um, the book called Org Design for, yes, that one. <laughs> uh, the one with um, Kristen Skinner, I believe was That's the right. co-author. Absolutely. And um, it definitely gave me a kind of a mental map of how things were working in some of the companies where I was at. And um, really interesting read. So uh, it'd be great for you to perhaps introduce yourself, tell us what you do and, and what your background is. Sure. Uh, so I'm Peter Merholtz. As the book suggests, I have become uh, I have become an organizational design consultant, uh, specific to design organizations. So my background, uh, my my degrees in anthropology. I'm a self-taught UX designer, uh, largely self-taught. I did take one evening class through UC Berkeley Extension uh, twenty some years ago, but largely self-taught UX designer. Um, in 2001. Uh, started a UX design firm called Adaptive Path with six friends, uh, helped run that for 10 years. I left in 2011. Uh, for those who know about Adaptive Path, I wasn't there when it got acquired. That happened in 2014. I, I was already out. And since 2011 or beginning of 2012, I've been a design executive uh, running teams in-house. And it was a combination of the Adaptive Path work and then trying to figure out how best to run teams inside organizations that led to the thinking that led to this book. Um, for the last couple of years, I've been independent and focused on doing consulting and contracting uh, around design organizations. And so that means largely what I get brought in to do is help teams that are recruiting and hiring <laughs> figure out how to do that better. Um, that particular kind of work has uh, tapered off the last few months for reasons uh, that we are all familiar with. Um, but even when I was doing that recruiting and hiring work, it was never just about recruiting and hiring. When you pull the thread on recruiting and hiring, the whole design org unravels. You talk about roles and role definitions and jobs and job descriptions. You end up talking about skills, skill sets, how to, um, how to assess skill sets. You talk about levels or career ladders and how do you know how someone is growing in an organization. You talk about um, think back there, I don't know if you can quite see it, but org models for design teams with respect to product and engineering and how design can work best. So all of that stuff kind of comes with that territory. So that's, that's what I help uh, or design teams uh, figure out and work through. Amazing. Amazing. Yes. It's, it's interesting when you read the book because you can't help but um, think back to places where you've worked and different teams you've been in and uh, kind of start to personify the people that you um, that you denote in the book within these different models. Oh, it's oh, that was that guy. That was that was. I remember a person just like that that was like this, <laughs> you know. And um, definitely, there's it's it's. Um, I think even for people that aren't managers or in some sort of managerial position where they have to organize a team, it's really great to read because to, to kind of understand where you sit in that architecture of an organization is so. Um, relieving, I think, of the uh, the feeling that someone can have when they're in a big company, and they're not quite sure how you know where their sort of team is located within this big plethora of people that you know for the for the most part they haven't met. They're sort of within this small team, and, and then how do they have impacts? What is their impact? You know, so it's it's really. I think, you know, in that alone, it was, it was an incredible thing to, uh, to, to get into. Yeah, you, you, you hit upon a theme uh, there, kind of a, a motivating force, which was, frankly, from my own career, where, you know, when, you, when, when a designer starts out, they think that in order to make the impact they want to make on the world, they just have to do good design, and good design kind of wins out. Um, but then you do all this good design work that doesn't have an impact, that doesn't see the light of day, and so then some designers kind of move upstream and they're like, it's about strategy. If I can pull the strategic levers, if I can get involved in planning, if I can make a business case 
um, for doing good design, then I'm setting setting things, setting the conditions up to enable good design. And as someone who's been a strategist, that's also not sufficient. And kind of to the point you were making, what I realized is you have to go even further back or, or deep, depending on, on your orientation, and, and appreciate just the, 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 the role that an organization plays, the structure, the relationships, the mindset, the values of an organization, not just a design team, but where the design team sits within a larger organization, because there's a lot of forces in play that you don't even, that you might not be aware of that are affecting your ability to succeed. And it's, and it's to that point, this is a, the book is in, in part an attempt to provide kind of a map of that territory and pull, pull a designer far, far back enough that they can see the whole picture and understand where they sit within it instead of kind of how they typically are, which is they're just in that, that one box and, and they don't know what's going on and they just hope that whatever they're doing is contributing and making a positive impact. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I definitely know what that feels like. Yeah, <laughs> when you're sort of in a big company, you're not really sure where the, um, uh, where the change is being made that, that you're affecting. Uh, and, then, and then also being in companies where you, you do have a sense of, of, um, of that impact to, to more of an extent. And, um, and, and that's, when you, that's when you get to do really great work, or at least a feel, maybe it's the same word, but it feels like great work because you kind of know that it's great. You know what I mean? It's a strange one. Um, I, I definitely think that companies now and in the future more so will just adopt the type of models that you're, that you're that you've been putting forward and that you've been doing. Really, really interesting. So you talk about the uh, centralized model, um, mm -hmm. which kind of leads into a kind of a waterfall approach, not necessarily, but in a sense. But then the, there's, there's the decentralized model, which also has pros and cons. And then you talk about the um, the the hybrid of the two, the um, mm -hmm. centralized partnership model. I That's believe. right. Yeah. So perhaps you could tell us more about that. Sure. Yeah. So um, when 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 I when I was first aware of design in house as a consultant, um, most of the design teams that we would work with were purely centralized. They were like these internal agencies um, that would get farmed out on work. And then over time. And I think it's particularly as kind of the agile revolution was taking hold. Um, and, and you started to see within companies, these smaller product teams. Design got decentralized, uh, where you had a designer on each of those smaller product teams. Um, and then, and so by the time I moved in-house, that decentralized model had largely taken root. Uh, uh, the companies I was working for, that was kind of the assumption was that a designer was embedded in a product team with a product manager and a group of engineers and possibly QA and, and some other functions. And um, while I recognized the, the, the value of that approach primarily in terms of kind of, um, when you had a designer embedded in the team, they were, they were really part of the team, they were a real owner. Right when you're when you're in that centralized model, when you're in that internal agency model, you're just kind of work for hire, even if you're all at the same company. But when you're in the team, you're you're a member of that team, and there is a lot of value there. Um, it it suffers from from a few major uh, challenges. Probably the one that I was most cognizant of was an inability to deliver a great experience, kind of end to end. Right when you have all these product teams doing their work separately from one another. Um, when you when you try to pull it all together, it, it becomes this mess. And I was working at an e-commerce site, Groupon, and so you know the experience was crossing all these product teams. And I couldn't have, I didn't think it was right to expect our our shoppers to have to learn new interfaces or new ways of working as they went from searching to looking at a product to adding it to their shopping cart to purchasing. Right, that should all feel like it came from the same company. Mm. And so that led to this model that you call the centralized partnership where it's centralized because design as is a centralized function. Um, it all rolls up to a, a head of design and, um, uh, but it doesn't operate in the internal agency way of a typical centralized uh, team. The, the partnership is key. You break up design into a series of teams and those teams have committed partnerships with parts of the experience. So you might have a team in the e-commerce example, right? That looks at that, that shopping experience from search to purchase, right? So we have a team like that at Groupon. 
um, I might have another team, Groupon is a marketplace, that was doing something similar, but on the merchant side, right? So you have teams that are responsible for making sure that experience is coherent, and then they have to, then they hook into these product teams. Um, but that, and, and that is the key to that partnership. So what it solves for is, is trying to make sure that you're uh, delivering on a coherent end-to-end -end experience. I know you spoke with Jamie Levy uh, earlier, right? And as part of UX strategy, one of the things you're going to do is create journey maps and, and other artifacts of, of a customer's experience. Um, the challenge is when, when you, all you have are those artifacts, if you're not organized to, de to deliver on that, it becomes this nice thing you put on a wall. I'm trying to figure out how do I take an artifact like that and actually operationalize it? How do you turn it into something that can drive um, how you organize your teams so that you can deliver on that promise of a, of a coherent journey? Um, the other, I think one other issue that's important to, to consider in terms of the centralized partnership model or, or, and its benefit over decentralized is that a truly decentralized model uh, kind of the original Spotify squad models or, or the ways that places like Amazon and Facebook would be, designers would end up reporting up through product people. And those uh, product folks often had no idea how to manage design, um, right? And so a designer struggles then with figuring out how to grow in their career and how to become better at their job, right? The, the product manager has a very uh, almost transactional relationship with that person. You are going to produce wireframes and comps for me and we are going to build a thing. Whereas if I'm the designer, I'm like, I want to grow. I want to become a better designer. I want to flex. I want to learn new things. And, and a truly decentralized model really makes that harder. And so the centralized partnership by re-centralizing the, uh, the design team provides that um, context and environment where designers can can not only can grow, they can learn how to grow. They can have mentors who help them grow. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Really interesting. And then you mentioned also in the book, the, uh, that operational side to it being really, really key and almost as important as the, the products in the end. So the, the operational um, requirements that you have to incorporate those types of models. So when you came into Groupon and you had that, centralized model that wasn't working the way that, that that it needed to to get that coherent experience what did you do how did you start to change that <laughs> yeah no that's a great question um so there were probably two things that that kind of drove me one was bringing in this this service design mindset right so i was talking about kind of that customer journey right so so at Groupon there, we hadn't yet embraced that user journey, customer journey mindset, that recognition that everybody is going through some end-to-end -end experience. So, so just trying to get people to be aware that that is the organizing principle um, that we are going to operate within uh, was, was key. But then to make that real, what I ended up doing, probably the most important thing I did was uh, hiring in uh, a leadership layer. So I was brought in as a VP of design. Uh, I inherited a team that had about 25-ish people in it, um, about 10 or so marketing or communication designers and about 12 product designers and a few UX researchers. And um, um, there was me, there was a creative director who oversaw the marketing design. And then there was just this kind of mass of product designers. They were not organized. There wasn't a management structure. There was no shape to how they operated. And so I realized pretty quickly that I needed to bring on my leadership layer because we basically were going from VP right to individual contributor and, and like mid-level designers. Like, like we didn't even have senior designers or many senior designers. And so to answer your question, I ended up hiring managers and design directors that who reported to me and that I could then build teams around, or rather, by bringing them in, their their initial charter was to was to build their team. Sometimes they had people that they could already draw from in the organization, but they all, also often had to do some recruiting and hiring to flesh that out. And so, um, within about nine months, I now had enough of a leadership layer and five or six managers and directors that I could build teams around. And and that was when we kind of 
did this fundamental shift in the organization from kind of the chaotic model we had before of just like, let's get stuff done to we have a, we have a design director in charge of the uh, consumer shopping experience. We have a design director in charge of the merchant experience. We have some design managers within there because the consumer experience was big. So it needed more, more than one leader to lead it. And, and we were able to give it some shape that allowed us to now um, uh, operationalize design appropriately. Instead of it just being this kind of fog of activity, there was some sensibility, there was some rationale behind it. Um, and you knew which team to go to for what kind of work. That team, would, each team would have a spread of skills, right? So um, we wanted to make sure that teams could go could be strategic, could do the structural kind of IA style work, could do interaction design work, could do the visual design work, all within the team, really kind of have that, that suite of capabilities. And, and about nine months in, we, we've, we had the org, the basic org structure that allowed us to start doing work, uh, high quality work consistently. Amazing, it must have been a great moment to see that organization come together that you'd been planning and designing to then have that it, it was, yeah, it's this kind of, um, you, you almost don't, it was a little bit weird because it's not like you flip a switch and like everything's different. <laughs> you were kind of easing into it, but there, we did have a, an all hands, right? So um, like many companies, Groupon had offices in many cities. And so we uh, had all the designers come to the Bay Area um, uh, and as part of a kind of two day, just kind of team building set of activities and exercises, I shared out this vision for what I was calling teamifying Groupon. And here were the pillars, here were the teams, here were the leaders, here's how they mapped to this kind of journey model. Uh, here's your, your, as a team members, your relationship to it. And we, we did try to kind of celebrate it and call attention to it. Um, and then from, from then on, that was, that was just how we operated. Nice, nice, really cool. Yeah, I think that it's great when you have those types of events, when you bring the team together, you, you allow people to have that interaction. I think it's really cool when, when you can do that. And uh, what I really liked in the book and the way you led into that kind of model was um, first talking about the problem of the, the centralized model and then the, the pros and cons of decentralized. Um, and it seemed like this really impossible challenge, but then you sort of, there's this point where you mention uh, the user type and mm. having the teams be uh, organized around that. And it was so, uh, such a great and simple solution. Uh, so you, you know, you've got the buyer, for example, in, in, this, in the book, you've got the buyer and the seller, and then teams can sort of go in and out depending on what function they serve. Well, that was really cool, really made sense. Yeah, um, that's something I continue to uh, promote, uh, believe in. You know, it's, it is a model, it's not the model, it's not even the best model. Um, my, as I was alluding to earlier, my uh, bias or inclination is, is around delivering an end-to-end -end experience. That for me is the most important uh, uh, result of a design organization. And so because of that, I organize my teams by customers in their journey so that, so that a team can um, have that, develop that deep empathetic sense for a customer and what it is they're going through and deliver all along the way. Um, you know, they're, they're a more common model, like when we were talking about these decentralized models, you either get teams that are organized by product, right? And so you might have one customer, but a, a suite of products that they're, that they're going through. Imagine Microsoft having, you know, Word, Excel, PowerPoint, right? You know, the same person is often using them, but you organize the teams by products, right? That's an approach. And when you reach a certain scale, sometimes it's, that's what's manageable. Um, uh, another uh, approach that you tend to see in a lot of kind of internet tech companies is teams organized by platform. I was just actually talking to a friend at a company where, where they're still doing this, which kind of surprised me because I thought we'd move beyond it, but I guess we still have web teams and mobile teams and when you have mobile teams, you have your iOS team and your Android team. Um, and, uh, you know, basically you're, you're organizing by code base. Um, and the logic to that typically is more of an engineering, it's more of an engineering logic than, than even a product logic, much less a, um, uh, 
design logic, right? And um, that I, I find that problematic, that, that organization problematic because users are often switching between um, platforms, at least uh, between web and mobile. With, within a native mobile, you're I, I, unlikely to go from iOS to Android. So, so if those are distinct, I'm, I'm more forgiving. But uh, I know in my experience, right, I'm using Zoom right now. I happen to be using it on, on my laptop. So I'm using the, the Mac client for Zoom. But I often use it on my iPad uh, because I find that the camera's better. Um, I just can't plug in my fancy microphone to that yet. <laughs> and um, uh, it's clear that that their different teams are working on these experiences. They behave differently. They, the features are not up par, par, which makes some sense, right? You don't need to, uh, you, you expect a, a desktop or, or, or you know, a PC experience to be a bit more full-fledged perhaps than a, than a um, mobile experience. And I'm, I'm considering iPad mobile, but, but it's also clear that like the designers of the, of, of the uh, Mac experience are not talking to the designers of the iPad experience. Cause like things are in different places. It's just the, the way it's organized is very different. Right. And so instead, what would it be if they were to organize those teams instead of by platform, by user type, by, by some form of, of understanding of a journey and, and that consistency um, in, a, in an effort to make sure that wherever I am, a company that does this really well is Netflix and I have no idea how they're organized, but Netflix is on literally every platform on earth. That was kind of a strategy of theirs. It's on PlayStation, it's on Roku, it's on desktops, it's on laptops, it's on um, mobile devices, but in every format, it, it, it's not, it doesn't take a lot to figure out how to navigate it. Even when the modalities are very different, right? I use it on a Roku. I'm using a, a, a D pad remote, essentially navigating that versus navigating it on uh, an iPad. No, no problem, right? They've understood kind of how to how to create an experience for the user that feels consistent, um, which uh, is a model that I think a lot of companies would stand to uh, 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 it would improve if they were to deliver in that way. Yeah, that that makes sense. I feel I feel like anytime there's an un, um, unintentional difference in the experience, depending on if you're on the mobile app or if you happen to be on the website. And it's not quite the same in a way that wasn't intended, but just happened to be that way because of, as you were saying there, like the engineering, um, the engineering differences in, in the code base and things like that, and teams not talking to each other, just doesn't feel right. Um, I, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. I've got an iPad too. I actually don't ever, I pretty much never use it. I, I don't know why it's, it works, but I mean, I've had it for like three years, but I've used it maybe five times. <laughs> so, um, I mean, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm not getting enough utility out of it for, for my reasons or something. Um, but that's, that's super cool. Uh, also, in the book, uh, talking of consistent user experiences, I really like Medium. I think Medium's a really interesting platform. And okay. Andrew, the head of design, uh, gave a really great forward in your book. Uh, so how did that come about? Are you guys friends or how did that work? Yeah, so uh, Andrew Crow. Uh, put, put that up there just so folks can see. There he is. Um, I think when, when we asked him to write the foreword, he might have still been um, running design at Uber. Um, but then by the time the book came out or shortly thereafter, he had moved to Medium. Andrew's just an old friend. He, um, he worked with us at Adaptive Path. So he had actually been on the client side. Uh, Adaptive Path, he was working, he was living in the Los Angeles area working for Princess Cruises and had, he had brought Adaptive Path in as a client uh, to do some design work on um, how to book a cruise. And we just got along really well and we found out he wanted to move to the Bay Area and uh, we enjoyed working with him. And so we um, offered him a role and he, he worked with us and I worked with him at Adaptive Path for two, three years, something along those lines. I, I, I forget exactly how long. Um, and so, yeah, he's just a, a friend and, and former colleague. And, and he, uh, he, I'm trying to remember, he, he and I used to talk about, especially when he was at Uber and, and building out that team, we, we had some conversations about how he was growing that organization. And it turned out he and I had the same boss, uh, or I had had the same boss. So my boss at Groupon was his boss at Uber. And so um, there, were, there were lessons I learned in terms of working for that guy 
that I was able to <laughs> help him with as he was working for that guy. And we just, I mean, his experience was drastically different than mine. You know, at Groupon within 18 months, I grew a team from 25 to almost 60, which seemed like hyper growth. Uh, in the same period of time, Andrew grew a team from 20 to, I think it was about 150. So, so he was operating at a whole order of magnitude greater than, than mine. Um, but yeah, so, so he's a, a friend and colleague. And um, his, I, I, I knew that his uh, mindset was uh, aligned. One of, one of the things Andrew and I share, and I mentioned that, I, I alluded to it earlier, um, is this recognition that um, uh, we, should know, we should not be distinguishing between brand design and product design the way that we typically do. Um, so at Groupon I had, as I mentioned, the communication design team and the product design team. And, and having them both reporting to me was, was crucial for um, many initiatives, right? We, uh, Groupon as an e-commerce company did a lot of seasonal campaigns. And when you're doing those types of campaigns, the concepts of those campaigns are usually created by your um, communication design group, but they're realized through the product design experience, right? And so we needed these teams to be able to work together. And I, I've been in environments where those two teams, you know, report up differently, UX reporting up through product management and a marketing team reporting up through a CMO. And when that happens, there's all this overhead to the coordination that gets in the way of collaboration. And I didn't, but a group on, I didn't have to deal with it. I'm just like, you two communication designers and you two product designers, you're now a team, figure that out. Um, and uh, uh, Andrew uh, has a background uh, in brand as much as product. And so we were aligned in that regard as well. And when he was at Uber, he was overseeing both. Um, and, and that's something we, that's something I continue to encourage in my work is, is making sure that your brand and product designers are able to collaborate without um, without obstacles, without barriers. Mm, yeah. How do you, how would you help um, a design team that has a mix of, let's say, designers from a marketing background that perhaps don't um, care so much for product design and yet have to work together to some capacity to have that alignment of brand and product? How do you, um, how do you get um, cohesion within a team like that? Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the first thing is to recognize the, that much of the work will be distinct. Marketing design work tends to have its own cadence and rhythm, tends to be more rapid turnaround, right? Marketing design, this, the time scale is, is days, weeks, maybe a month. Whereas in product design, the time scale is, you know, sprints. So you got weeks, months, quarters, right? And so product design, is, is recognized as a bit more complex anyway so 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 just you know not trying to force it all to be the same and and giving it the space that it needs but um there are times uh, i mentioned this seasonal campaign um my last full-time role i was running design at a company called snag a job and we rebranded the company from snag a job to snag uh they have since unrebranded that's a whole other story um but while i was there we rebranded the company and when you're doing a rebrand, right, again, that's gonna be something that's largely led by your marketing and brand design teams, but it's gonna be realized through the product experience. And so the fact that I had both teams just reporting to me, I could, we can make that work really well uh, as, a, as a collaboration. Um, basically the product designers could um, provide a, a real good requirements for us as, uh, as we were rebranding to make sure that it was going to work within the product context. Um, in terms of uh, addressing kind of the, the, you know, marketing design, not understanding or not quite a, um, uh, you know, maybe not having had the experience in working within product and knowing quite how to get the most or, or, or kind of contribute to that as well as possible. A um, couple of thoughts on that. Um, many marketing designers, especially younger marketing designers, um, are, are digital first. And as a digital designer, uh, I, I actually think they don't see the distinctions between themselves, between marketing and product, the way that people like me have been doing this for 25, 30 years, you know, kind of growing up within those distinctions being a lot harder and faster. Um, I, I think there's a, a, a younger generations of designers don't see it. And so I'm fine that, you know, younger marketing designers have no, I want to say no problem, but they are much more game to engage in, in product design 
Um, you see, you know, I work with some marketing design teams right now. They often have a UX group that's responsible for things like a public website. And so they might not be doing, you know, the, the complexity of software design that a product design team is doing. Lots of edge cases and business logic and all that, right? It's still, you know, when you're doing the public website, it's, it's, it's more about, you know, communicating ideas and concepts and a lot of content and that kind of thing. It's not, it's not a, as much of a tool or application, but a lot of the same practices apply um, uh, in terms of user research and wireframing and prototyping and all that. Uh, it's just that the, the, what it is you're delivering is, is, a, is a different kind of beast. Um, so, so one, I think they're, I think uh, kind of allowing those marketing designers to, to understand and embrace and engage product design, just kind of giving them that freedom You'll, you'll see them kind of take to that. And then the other uh, responsibility or the other factor is one of leadership. Something I, I, th I think a lot about and spend a lot of time talking about. Uh, so the podcast I have with my colleague, Jesse, is all about design leadership. And there's a role that leadership plays in bridging these gaps and making these connections between different groups. So within a team, either me as uh, the head of design or, you know, the director of uh, brand design or director of product design, those folks have responsibilities for communicating within the organization about why we should all be working together and how we can work better together. Um, leaders have a similar responsibility for communicating to peers, right? So I look at my, if I'm overseeing product design and marketing design, I look to my product design directors to have conversations with VPs of engineering and um, product leaders on how they can work best. And I look to my marketing design leaders to have conversations with their product marketing and marketing communications peers on how they can work best. Leadership is, is so much about communications and relationships. And so um, those communications and relationships need to be turned inward sometimes to help a design team figure out how it can be its best and then turned outward to help other functions know how to best work with that design team. Mm, absolutely. When when you don't have strong design leadership, um, you know, what, what can happen? What can go wrong in an organization where you have different teams, you have these different models? Yeah. Um, the biggest thing that goes wrong with a lack, a lack of design leadership is the designers uh, turn into order takers. Um, the, the, if, if what you have is a bunch of designers and not a lot of design leadership, then the, the, the design leadership comes from those cross-functional peers. Let's focus, this is a UX podcast, so let's focus on the product side, right? So design leadership is now coming from product managers who are sketching wireframes, who are drafting requirements and handing that to a designer with an expectation that the designer is going to essentially produce a set of assets to be uh, put into a delivery mode. Um, and so that's so that's that's probably the biggest issue is that design becomes this this order taking function that just kind of um, spits back um, uh, assets, spits back uh, uh, comps and, and other types of design deliverables. Um, also, you know, if, if you go one level higher without real design leadership kind of related to this, what I was just saying, without real design leadership, design is constrained in terms of its ability to really have an impact, right? Because there's, there's no one there who is uh, protecting design, championing design, giving it the space that it needs both to do high quality work, but also to, to have an impact on, on aspects of the organization that people might not expect design to have an impact on, such as product strategy, right? If you're doing design work right, you're doing some form of research. If you're doing that research, that research delivers customer insights. Those customer insights should be driving product strategy, right? But if, if you don't have design leaders to, to communicate how design can have an impact at those more strategic levels, then um, that's another, that becomes this other challenge for design. It's just kind of constrained to um, a more uh, tactical uh, type of work. Um, in the book, I don't know how quickly I can find it. Um, in the book, we talk about the, the double diamond. And um, the double diamond, right, is this model of design <laughs> right there, um, where on the left, you've got um, definition, and on the right, you have execution. And 
design without design leaders is all right diamond work. It's all execution. You, with design leaders, you can now start moving upstream and doing the definition work as well. Absolutely, makes sense. And much better to be in a company where you have that strong leadership. Um, I suppose, again, it, it gives you, um, as you were saying there, it gives you access to that first time and more so you, you, you can almost engage more with the executives of a company knowing that there's a person who is uh, leading that engagement potentially so that you can actually get stuck in and start doing things like that. Yeah, really, really interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, your, your experience with Adaptive Path is, is uh, yeah, is, is great thing to talk about. I don't even know how to describe it. Uh, <laughs> it's just, um, you know, I, I've been following, you know, it for a while. It's just really, really cool to have this conversation, man. Um, so it's, tell us more about Adaptive Path. And, and um, I mean, that, that was the first real user experience consultancy. And you were uh, yeah, very innovative in the way that you led that. So that'd be great Thank to hear more about it. Yeah. So Adaptive Path, so we launched in 2001. Uh, many of us came from consulting backgrounds, though not all of us. Uh, and um, we, were, we were essentially the first consulting firm focused on user experience. You either had, like I had worked at design firms like Studio Archetype, and you had Studio Archetype and Razorfish and Organic, and they had user experience as part of their work, but they weren't focused on it. Um, um, and, and, and they were often not good at particularly good at being user centered in their practices or you had usability consulting um, you had the uh, jacob nielsen or mark hurst and creative good and that was very kind of usability oriented and we really were trying to carve out this space of user experience from from user research and strategy through to uh design delivery um, and, uh, and always with this kind of user-centered user approach. Um, but we didn't do engineering. <laughs> we didn't do brand. So we, there were things that we didn't do that say a design firm would do like brand work or a more end-to-end um, -end consultancy would also have engineering, right? We were really specialists in user experience. Um, you know, we started in 2001. We started as a, as a, as a fairly straightforward web user experience firm. Um, uh, you know, and, and at that time, this was when the NASDAQ was at its lowest. So there wasn't work. We didn't, end up, we didn't do a lot of work in product uh, type of user experience. All the work we did was in marketing kind of user experience. We were doing big content heavy websites and helping, them fig helping companies figure out how to organize that information to make it more um, findable, understandable, that kind of thing. Uh, it wasn't until 2005 when my colleague and now co-host of the podcast, Jesse, um, coined the term Ajax uh, to explain a set of, of web technologies. We were able to kind of use that momentum to leave the marketing world behind and really focus on product user experience. Um, and that became, that became our focus for a while. And then we started pulling back and we, we had hired some people who you know had design degrees. So none of the original founders had design degrees, um, but we started hiring people out of out of design programs, a CMU's Interaction Design Program, or the Institute of Design out of uh, the Illinois Institute of Technology. And as we were bringing these people in, they were telling us, "Oh, hey, you're actually doing what in school we call service design." And we're like, "Okay, sounds good. Let's <laughs> let's do service design." Um, but, but that, that service design mindset kind of speaks to something we had from the beginning, which was this, one of our, one of our um, tenets was, was all around context and really understanding the big picture within which people were, were engaging. And service design as a practice was, was the first design practice to really embrace the um, complexity, the multi-channel reality of that context that that users were were part of and so we we you know kind of pulled back again to becoming this service and strategic design consultancy so we you know we start by being this simple web user experience consultancy that most you know most of our projects were a lot of like sitemaps and wireframes um, and then by the time i left in 2011 we're doing you know what is the vision of 
the future of commerce, the future of media, these really big, hairy, visionary type of projects or um, service experience projects. How do we, how do we um, deliver an experience that crosses, um, so for retail, say, in-store, online, kiosk, you know, how do you coordinate all that kind of stuff? So that was kind of how, how we grew as a firm and, and how I grew in my practice, right? I was able to kind of ride that wave and go from being um, a fairly narrowly focused web user experience designer to a much broader um, systems and service designer. Amazing, amazing and really cool. And yeah, I hear what you're saying with the, the service design mindset. That's interesting. I remember when I first came across that type of design in university, uh, we had a pr professor that was teaching us about it. And he was sort of telling us about this area of design that was um, not as common to, to go into. Uh, as in there was no, there was less specific job titles as service designer in, in the industry. At that time. Of course, Maybe there's more yeah. now. <laughs> there's more um, now. Not in the not so much in the United States. Uh, it, yeah. it it seems to be very much country by country. I, uh, last year, I visited Australia, and I have friends, two different friends who run two different service design firms um, that are both decent size. You know, I don't know, twenty twenty five people each. Um, and the reason that Australia can, can support that level of service design is because um, the public sector actually invests quite heavily in design in Australia. So much of their, much of their work, their client is the federal government or state or provincial governments. In the United States, we've never had that kind of public investment in design. You know, the federal government isn't investing in service design. State and local governments don't as much. There's some exceptions. The city of San Francisco actually has service designers on staff, but it's pretty rare. And so the, 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 um, the, the application and the, the kind of establishment of service design varies greatly from country to country, kind of depending on essentially how uh, community-minded the population and the government are. And it's probably not a huge surprise that the United States doesn't rank so high on those fronts. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I didn't, didn't realize it was, yeah, different countries had, um, had funding for, for service science. It was very interesting. Yeah. And you mentioned also with when you were going from the moving away from just the purely marketing side of, of stuff, uh, getting into the more, more of the strategy and thinking about what the vision, you mentioned the example of commerce could be from kiosk and physical experiences, things like that. When you're working with a company, um, maybe for people listening also, how can you, I think you mentioned in the book, it's a, um, uh, a personal professional mission, which I thought was kind of a cool way of yep. putting it. Like you have this mission, you have a, a way of defining it. And then you gave some examples of companies that have values they use to reinforce that, that mission. How do you come up with that for, for a company um, in that phase of, I suppose, first diamond? What is the vision? Yeah, so... Um... I think a lot about missions right now because um, much of my work uh, this year has been helping design teams craft these charters. Um, so I, I, I haven't really done it for, for whole companies, but for design teams within organizations, what often happens is they get to a certain point in their evolution where kind of the informal way that they had been operating up until then isn't holding water. Usually they're, they're too big now. There's, there's more people on the team that can fit around a table. Um, uh, and so you start needing to put in place um, material that defines the organization so that um, I, as a designer, if I'm having a conversation with non-designers, I, I kind of know what I stand for, <laughs> um, even without needing to check in with my, my boss, my design leader, whatever, right? I, 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 need to, I need to understand how I show up as a designer uh, when I engage with other people. And so um, I've been working with, I've done three or four uh, essentially workshops, though what were, what were in-person workshops turned into a series of, of work sessions on Zoom uh, and using tools like Miro, uh, formerly Real-Time Board, um, to help these teams articulate 
their charter essentially define themselves. And key to that, the, the, there's two elements of a charter that are, that are crucial. One is a, a mission or purpose statement. Why do you exist, right? If you, if you can't tell me why your team exists, you're not a team, you're a collection of individuals. You're just a group. A team is, is defined by that purpose. Um, and so, and, uh, so, so doing the work to articulate a purpose statement for this uh, group of people is, is essential. Um, there's a bunch of other things that, that I then help them with, but then the second most important thing are measures of success. How does the team know that they are doing well? And those measures of success are crucial because um, every design team has more stuff coming at it than they have capacity to handle. I have never met a design team that totally has it together and is, you know, um, uh, has available capacity for kind of side projects or other type of work, right? There's always more, more design work that could be done than there are people to do it. So you need a means by which you prioritize and filter uh, the, that incoming, uh, those incoming opportunities for work. And, and measures of success are crucial there because by making clear how you know you are succeeding, that can help you determine what work you take on and what work you, you um, uh, either push off, neglect, farm elsewhere, delay. Um, and, and it provides focus without that understanding of your purpose and understanding of how you know you're successful. It can be hard for a team to know when to push back on requests, right? And so all these requests are coming in. And if you don't have, if you haven't defined what you're about, it's hard to say no, because if you say no to someone, they'll say why, and you'll just say, well, because. And well, because can't be the answer. The answer needs to be, that's not who we are, that's not our mission, that's not the work we do, that's not going to, that's not on our, um, so I, uh, uh, if you're familiar with OKRs, objectives and key results, it's a common kind of um, uh, measurement framework within Silicon Valley and other companies have, have adopted it. So if it's not an ROKR, it's if it's not how, what we're signing up for in order to demonstrate our success, you know, now, now I can say no, because I can say no, because it's not aligned with, with who, what we're about. Um, I, I feel like I've kind of take, took your question and went where I wanted to go with it, not necessarily where you wanted it to go. But it's a great way to go. It's very, very interesting. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> I, I just, you know, the, for me, um, uh, I, I'm spending a lot of time thinking about these mission statements, these charters. So just to break it down, a mission, a char oh, sorry, a charter has a number of components. You have a mission or purpose statement. Why do you exist? What is your reason for being? You have a set of values. What are the, what are the values that your uh, team upholds? Um, you, had a set, you have a set of norms. How do you behave? How do you show up with one another within your design team? And then how do you show up cross-functionally? How do you show up working with product managers? How do you show up working with engineers? How do you show up working with executives? Um, and then you have um, the work you do. It's actually important to be explicit about the kind of work you do. A lot of design teams end up doing work they don't want to do because they've never made it clear that's not what they do, right? So back at Adaptive Path, we, we uh, got to a point where we didn't want to do usability testing anymore. So we had to be very explicit, like that's just not what we do. We recognize its value. It should be done in the world. That is not a service we provide. If you want usability testing, <laughs> we will, we will uh, partner with other firms that do that better than we do. And so similarly, an internal design team needs to say like, we do these things, we don't do these things. And so by, by being very clear uh, and defining yourself, um, that, gives, that gives you as a team now a, a, a way to uh, engage with more confidence, with more certainty, with more agency um, than uh, you will before when um, you're just simply reacting to other people's assumptions about you. And it can be hard again to say no, because you haven't, you haven't said what you say yes to and what you say no to. So you're like, yeah, okay, I guess we do that. Mm, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, when, when you know what you stand for, it's easier to say, as, as we explained that, no to things that you don't stand for. Exactly. Makes total sense. Exactly. Yeah. And what, what would be, um, I suppose, uh, a kind of a normal example of what a, a success measure would be when you're creating these chances for companies? What would be a sort of run of the mill? Yeah. Um, 
So one that comes up again and again for design teams, and it's true for any team, um, uh, is, is team health. Um, and and team, because team health can be measured by morale um, and by uh, essentially retention. Um, morale is a stated measure of team health. Uh, retention is um, unstated, but, but correlated to team health, right? So a lot of companies do these, some, some form of internal pulse survey, right? Where they, where they pull the team and just find out how folks are feeling across a variety of factors. And you can now measure that, right? Quarter by quarter, however, however often that survey is happening. And if morale is improving, great, you're, that's, that's a good sign. If morale is flat or not improving, that's not a good sign, right? And so that becomes this measure that, that you follow. And then if, 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 if things are going well, you just keep doing what you're doing. If things are going poorly, you now have to engage and try to figure out why, why is morale low? What do we need to do differently? Um, one team I'm working with has some morale challenges because they're just spread too thin. Um, not only do they have kind of designers embedded on project teams, they have individual designers embedded on multiple project teams. <laughs> and so designers never get to work together. And a single designer finds their attention can be split across two or three different pieces of work. And that's a very quick way to lead to low morale. And so um, in order to improve morale, right, the idea is how do we get designers to work more together and to be able to work on fewer things that are of, of greater importance. Um, another, the other measure of team health being retention, or another way to look at that, um, regrettable attrition is, is a phrase I think I've heard from HR folks, which is um, there's sometimes someone leaves your team and that's okay. You're like, you know what, it wasn't working out. And if they leave, that's fine. But sometimes someone leaves your team and it's not okay. Like it was a star performer, a strong performer, someone that you wanted to keep around and they left. And if it happens once a, a year or so, I mean, depending on the size of the team, right? If it happens very occasionally, okay, that's fine. Especially here in Silicon Valley, there's a certain kind of mobility that's expected between organizations. But if you're getting like a quarter of your team leaving, that you wanted to keep around, okay, that's a sign that something is wrong. I mean, it's kind of obvious to say it, right? But it's a sign that something's going wrong with the, in, in your organization and that you need to figure out how do you, how do you uh, staunch that bleeding? How do, you, how do you repair whatever the issue is? It might not be something that's bubbled up in morale measures, right? But that might be because people are in, in those pulse surveys, they might be saying what you want to hear instead of what they actually feel. But what they actually feel is being revealed by, oh wait, they're leaving my company to go join someone else. And then that person's leaving and then that person's leaving. Okay, something's going on here um, that maybe I, I wasn't aware of before. And now as a leader, I, 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 need to in, I need to try to root that out and engage and understand what are the conditions that are um, discouraging people here and encouraging them to leave. So that's, that's one um, obvious metric is, is team health. For sure. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying with, with the potential for people to just not say what they mean in those pulse meetings. When you have that situation of, oh, manager, and then you've got people down the chain as designers and researchers, whatever it may be, you kind of, um, there's almost a feeling if you don't want to, um, I suppose, be the one to say something that might be disagreeable. Um, I guess that depends on your character traits. Uh, I've been in teams where there's been there's always there's always one guy that's completely happy to do that. <laughs> you know? There's often there is, but I've, I, designers are are a funny bunch to lead, um, in that I think we as a community tend towards introversion, and tend towards not speaking up, uh, unfortunately, um, uh, and and so things can be left unsaid for too long, and then by the time they're left unsaid for a long time and then and then it becomes a blow up when they're addressed and so it's really important for design leaders to create a space to encourage people to speak up even when it is going to be unkind or potentially disagreeable one of the most important qualities of successful teams is this concept of psychological safety uh it's gotten some play in the last five to 10 years, Google did um, 
a research project uh, within Google focused on what was the what were the characteristics of a successful uh, project team uh, compared to less successful project teams. And far and away, the most successful teams, um, the the one factor they had. Uh, that, that contributed to their success was this idea of psychological safety. It's a concept that comes from a researcher, Amy Edmondson, and who's done a lot of research on teams and teaming. And psychological safety is basically, I can, I can screw up, I can speak out, I can be me, and I don't have to worry that I will somehow be um, reprimanded, fired, or otherwise damaged by being who I am. Um, uh, in a lot of organizations, when, when you speak up, you are, you are pushed down, you are considered a, a problem, uh, you are put on a pip, whatever it is, any number of things can happen. And when that starts happening, well, then people don't speak up. People don't bring them their full selves. They don't share uh, as fully and completely of, of who they are. And um, the, 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 the quality of the work suffers because of it. So if you can create a a space where folks feel like they can kind of try a bunch of different things, say a bunch of different stuff, and they will not be um, reprimanded for it, as long as it's not truly damaging, right? They can't start calling people names or, or being jerks to one another. But, but, but through the work itself, they're, if they're just trying things, and yeah, 20 of the things they're trying don't go anywhere, but that 21st thing ends up being this, this remarkable kind of aha moment. Right, you need to create a space that allows that to happen, and that's why psychological safety is so important. Um, and and I was always, uh, I was both, I found it both hard, but I was grateful when running, when helping run an adaptive path, that we would have, you know, you mentioned that one person who speaks out. Adaptive path was filled <laughs> with people who were comfortable telling me to my face how wrong we were leading the company, <laughs> and, it's, and and it can be difficult in a group setting. When, when you're being, you feel like the slings and arrows are, are coming at you in front of all the other team members. But I, I would realize I much rather preferred it happening in that context than for those folks to go get beers at the bar around the corner and to bitch and moan about me without me around. Because I can do something when it's in front of me. I can't do anything when it's happening uh, when I'm not there. Um, so however painful it can be to receive that type of feedback, um, you still want to encourage that, uh, you want to encourage that to, to emerge. Yeah, yeah, it makes total sense. If, if somebody's, as you say there, and, and, and the, the things that aren't working well come to light and you're, you're able to deal with it on the spot, perfect, it's kind of what you want, as you say. Um, Peter, I'm conscious of time. I don't want to take up um, a huge part of your day. Uh, this was a really great conversation. Thank you so Thank much you. For, for this time. I really, really appreciate you. Um, where can people find you online? Okay, where can they find me online? Where can't they find me online? <laughs> um, uh, you can find me on Twitter at PeterMe. You can find my professional website is PeterMerholtz.com. Um, uh, that explains my kind of consulting practice. Uh, I now have my own podcast, uh, started just a few months ago. That you can find at FindingOurWay.design or in your favorite podcast app, Apple Podcasts, et cetera, just search for Finding Our Way. That's the name of the podcast. Um, those are probably the, the best ways that, to, to find me at this point. Oh, and uh, the book has a website, orgdesignfordesignorgs.com, um, where we've been blogging since we wrote the book. So some new thinking there. And that's a place where you can reach out to not just me, but, but Kristen as well. So there's a few different ways that you can find me. Perfect. Very good stuff. And finally, um, just in closing, UX Consulting Academy is an online resource for UX consultants. And my last question for you, Peter, for everyone listening that wants to become a design leader at some point in their career, apart from buying your book, which is 100% recommended at any point in your career, I think, what steps can someone take that wants to make design leadership a part of their life's design? Oh... I wish I could answer this quickly. So the, the book I wrote is, is not a specifically a design leadership book. It's, it's helpful for design leaders, but it's not a plan for design leaders. Um, there is a new book out by Chris Avor and Russ Unger that is more focused at design leaders called Liftoff. It comes from, I think, Rosenfeld Media. It might be two waves, but, but, but Rosenfeld, the Rosenfeld Media Company. Um, that could be a great resource. Um, 
there's a talk that I've given. Uh, there's some variations of it, but the most recent was from the Design Leadership Summit. And it's a talk called Coach, Diplomat, Champion, Architect. And these are these four archetypes of a design leader. And what I would do is encourage anyone thinking about design leadership to watch that talk, in part because one of the things I try to do is scare people away from design leadership because design leadership is hard and it's messy and it's a pain. And so before becoming a design leader, figure out if that's actually what you want to be um, because um, uh, it's, a, it's, it's, it's difficult and it's a responsibility that not everyone is actually necessarily suited for. If, if after watching that talk and other design leadership talks, I would say, you know, all the presentations from that conference are, are quite good. You know, you can study this stuff up. If after watching a few of these talks from, from me and other design leaders, you're like, I'm still bought in, then one, those talks will have given you some steps in that direction and, and, and you can start, you can move forward with um, confidence. But you might find it coming out of those talks, it's just like, it doesn't feel like it's for you and that's okay. Not everyone has to become a leader. Um, we need a remarkable, um, you know, you talk about UX consultancy, we need remarkable consultants and craftspeople and folks who know how to just do the work really well too. And so don't assume that the only path forward is, is a leadership path. There are many ways uh, to contribute. Amazing. Peace of my holes. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you.